Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 81, with Christina Perello of Christina Cooks. After my mother passed away, I decided to move to Philadelphia from Florida, where my dad uh, was, it was still living, and my brother was in Philly. So I was like, well, let me just, you know, come up to Philly. New life, new whatever. And six months later, I get diagnosed with what would be considered stage four leukemia, although they don't stage leukemia. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office thinking, like, are you kidding? And they wanted me to go immediately to the hospital and start treatments. And I said, well, what are the chances? And they said, well, you're terminal. And they kept saying terminal, terminal, terminal. And finally, it was so frustrated. I'm like, that's a big building at the airport. What do we do? And they said, we'll try everything we can. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not, no, I'm not spending whatever time I have left sick and bald like my mother. I'm not doing it. I don't want to lose my hair. I don't want to be sick. I'm afraid of needles. No. So they agreed to let me go home and think about it. And um, I sat in my apartment for 24 hours and thought, I'm just going to move back to Italy. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant unless you count Burger King. On the show this week, I have Chef Christina Perello of Christina Cooks. After losing her mother to cancer, Christina was diagnosed with terminal leukemia in her mid-20s. Not wanting to undergo traditional treatment for cancer, she ultimately changed her diet and lifestyle, and her cancer went into remission. She's been cancer-free for more than 35 years now. Christina wanted to share what she'd learned about food and cooking, and Christina Cooks was born. She started her cooking show on PBS and won an Emmy in her first season, and has since published eight cookbooks as well. And while Christina maintains a vegan diet, she isn't preachy about it. We talked about her early days working in a professional kitchen, her journey to wellness, and how she built and grew the Christina Cooks brand. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you love it, please consider subscribing on whatever platform you listen on. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. It really means a lot. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Hey, Christina, how's it going? Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I I love the idea of what you're doing. I think it's great. I love the idea of uh, what you're doing. You know, I was just saying before we started rolling here how uh, I feel like it was like 15 years ago when I was living in Pennsylvania. I remember seeing you on TV and, and watching your show. And my wife and I were vegetarians at the time. We have transitioned away. We're not full vegetarians, but that's such a big part of like our how we eat at home. But remember, you know, watching your show and trying to pick up some tips, tricks and recipes because I was relatively new to it at the time. Yeah, it's been the show has actually been on the air for um 22 years now. I know. It's 
<laughs> I keep thinking, wait, what? And then I go back and watch one of the old shows and I go, oh yeah, it's definitely been 20, 22 years because my style has changed some and um, I'm better at it, which, you know, I remember my very first season on the air, um, one of my producers at the time, who is no longer a producer, thank God, would come in and put his hands on the counter after every take and go, well, that sucked. And I'd be like, like, what do I do with that information? You know? And then I would watch the dailies at the end. And I'd say to my director, like, how come I'm never looking at the right camera? And he'd say, don't you know to look at the one with the light? And I'm like, don't they all have lights? It was, I was so like uh, such a novice. And now, you know, I nice to throw up before every take. I'm not kidding. Five, four, three, hang on. She's throwing up. And then I, so I don't throw up anymore after 22 years. So that's, that's a big step for me. But um, I will tell you that TV is not anything that I ever thought I would do. I was not that kind of outgoing, gregarious. Like I loved being a pastry chef because I was usually alone. I baked from four in the morning till 10 in the morning, went back for dinner service and like, you know, went out with my chef friends at the end of the night. I would, I would never go to a table. Um, if I heard the maitre d' walking around saying, you know, where's chef? She's wanted at table nine. I'd splash something on my jacket so that I couldn't go out there. It was really, I was not um, outgoing. So um, I started... Oh gosh, my family is Irish and Italian. And the Italian side, of course, is where the food comes from. Italians are either uh, having breakfast and talking about lunch or having lunch and talking about dinner, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a, I like to think of it as a healthy obsession because we're always thinking about the pleasure of the next meal. It's not so much, oh God, I have to cook dinner as, oh God, I get to cook dinner, you know, so and now I spend a lot of time in Italy working. So it, it's, it's wonderful that I grew up in that household. And, and because we were Italian and Irish, we were not, well, I was, but the group in general was not a shy group. There were big political discussions at dinner and active and yelling. And, you know, you had to yell to be heard. So I was never heard because I wasn't a yeller. But I noticed in the kitchen that the women were never yelling. There was singing and drinking wine and telling stories and great smells and the food. And I thought at a very young age, yeah, this is, this is it. This is where, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to spend my life. I want to do this. And when I was four, my father was, who was a woodworker as well as a butcher asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And I told him I wanted a stool so I could reach the counter and help my mother in the kitchen. And he made this little wooden stool and he had painted little animals on it and little vegetables on it. It was really cute. I don't know where it is, but so I would climb up and my mother would have me, you know, roll meatballs or, uh, you know, I don't know, clean the vegetables in the sink or something. But she was always, she, she did engage me in a way that a lot of parents, I don't know if they do, or it's, a, and it's certainly a hassle. Certainly I was slower than she probably wanted me to be or whatever, but she really took the patience and so did my aunts and my grandmother. And, you know, growing up, we would come home from school and my mother would get home from work around four. So we would go upstairs to my Nana's and growing up, I thought everyone came home to an after-school snack of fresh-baked Italian bread and either beans or soup or like something like that to eat. I didn't, until I went to a friend's house, I didn't realize they were like, well, the Twinkies are in the cabinet. And I'd be like, the Twinkies? No, don't you have like a snack? 
you know, so we were, we were very food driven as a family. And, um, we had a huge garden. My Italian grandfather had a huge garden. And the irony was my mother, who was a hippie's hippie and a wonderful cook, was like into Ann Wigmore when she started and the Rodale brothers and what's all of what's this thing called organic. But she served all of that to us. She sat at the head of the table every night with a cigarette, a cup of coffee and whatever chocolate was in the house. Like she would eat pizza or pasta, but like not, you know, we had to eat the Brussels sprouts that they grew in the garden. We had to eat the zucchini. We had to eat the, but she would eat whatever she chose. She had like this arrogance of knowledge. You know what I mean? Like she knew all this stuff and did none of it. Interesting. We recycled. Yeah, it was so weird. We recycled before people recycled. We would drive for miles with tied up newspapers and crushed cans and whatever. So she was kind of ahead of her time, but. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why she never did it. So when, um, so when I turned 16, um, I said to my father, who was the butcher at a big hotel, I'm like, I would like to work in the kitchen. And he said, yeah, girls don't do that. I'm like, girls don't do that. And he goes, they just say, don't do it, hon. It's sorry. And I said, well, you should try. You're the butcher. So he comes home a few days later and says, I got you a job, uh, in the coffee shop. And I'm thinking, maybe I'm making cookies. I was a waitress. I lasted two days because I just, I'm not a waitress. I can't, I'm, I'm not graceful in that way. I, I just spilled coffee down a patron. I mean, it was terrible. And finally, the manager said to me, you, you, you have to go to the kitchen. Just, just go to the kitchen. And I thought, great. I would have done it two days ago. So I ended up in the kitchen. And the chef there said, um, so I understand you're a terrible waitress. I said, yeah. He said, all right, well, I'm stuck with you because we can't get rid of you because your father's the butcher. So for the first three months, I was allowed to wash vegetables. That's it. That's all I did for 12 hours a day. The second three months, I diced onions all day. Dice or half moon all day. The third three months, I shredded cabbage for coleslaw and julienne carrots for coleslaw because there was coleslaw on every table during the lunch of this hotel. The fourth three months, he came to me and he said, so you're the vegetarian, right? And I said, yeah. He said, you really want this job? I said, I do. He said, so for the next three months, you're going to clean the insides out of roasting chickens. And we didn't use gloves back then. So I did it. I wanted the job so badly. I did it. Like, I don't care. I'm doing it. At the end of the three months, he said to me, don't ever leave my side. And he taught me everything. He took me from the beginning, Grand Marger, Saucier, everything right through to standing next to him on the line, watching him cook and knowing full well, I would never cook half the things that, you know, he was cooking, but I learned how to make sauces, all the mother sauce, like everything. And then I went to pastry to try it out fell in love, studied pastry. And um, as a vegetarian, it was easier too. You know, I was still eating dairy at the time. So like, it wasn't as troublesome as um, working in a kitchen where I had to cook meat or fry fish or, you know, whatever. And my first, you know, I know chefs have the reputation that they have, but my first chef was amazing. And it took a while for me, for me to figure out why he was always so happy. But he, never, he, he wasn't a clipboard chef. He stood at his station and he cooked and then he would move. He would turn, move to the pass, put the food out, come back. You know, like he never left like within a four foot area. 
And above him on the metal shelf on the stove was a big bowl of ice and an eight cup measure of, I thought, water. And I thought, we're a smart guy. It's hot in here. He stays hydrated. So I was working next to him one day and he got called away. And I thought, screw this. I'm having some of his water. And it was vodka. Oh. <laughs> so now I knew why he was so relaxed all the time. Just take that edge off. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that was how I came into the like actual kitchen life after cooking my whole life. And certainly home cooking is very different than, you know, kitchen cooking, but I never fell out of love with it, you know, and kitchens, you know, kitchens were rough when I, when I started, girls were not that welcome and kitchens were rough. I often say I knew that I was at work because somebody's hand was on my ass and I knew I was not at work because there were no hands on my ass. But you kind of uh, either toughened up or quit. You know, it, it, we didn't, it wasn't like now where you could, you know, go to somebody and say, hey, chef was inappropriate or whatever. And I think I'm not excusing them by any means. You know, everyone should be treated equally and with uh, justice. But it's such a hard job and it's so hot and so sweaty and you're so close to each other. I think that there's an intimacy that comes whether you like it or not. You know what I mean? And you have to kind of step to it and defend yourself in order to survive. And that's men or women. Now, if you're not, I always say to my students at uh, culinary school, if you're not excited by every garlic clove that comes across your cutting board, and if you don't think you can step up to defend yourself, you should go sell shoes because this is not the job for you. Well, and you also talk about this like extended period of prep time. What I've seen is like today you bring in a cook who has like no experience and, you know, a, a week into just doing basic prep, they feel slighted that they're not working the line. Like they've come in and cut onions and carrots and six days later, it's like, Ooh, when do I get to do that? It's like, when am I executive chef, right? <laughs> right? You just got here. I mean, I'm not one who feels like you have to quote unquote, pay the dues for ex an exorbitant amount of time, but it seems like everyone, well, not everyone, but so many people want it like overnight. Uh, and I think there's a middle ground. And I also think that's celebrity chef, which is this weird phrase that we use now, really contributed to that a lot. You know, you're going to go cut carrots for four days and you're going to be a star. And it's like, well, no, it doesn't really work that way. You know, you work really, really hard, you know, and, and you know, even people like Julia Child, who never worked in a commercial kitchen in her entire life and was the pioneer for all of us, particularly women who do what we do in a kitchen or on TV or whatever, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, you look at Julia and she was amazing because as she came into sort of popularity, Betty Friedan was also coming into popularity, telling women to get out of the kitchen, break the chains, get out. And Julia actually stood up to her saying, cooking is not about being a housewife. Cooking is not a, is an art. It's a life skill. It's it's the it's the skill of the intellect. I mean, she was amazing to watch and to listen to. So, you know, she made a big difference for women in and out of commercial kitchens, even though she never actually worked in a restaurant. Yeah. So, and then you lost your mom of cancer when she was like in her mid forties, right? Forty nine. She, um, my mother, uh, my mother looked like a forties pinup girl even after having four kids. And she was very committed to fitness. I grew up 
coming downstairs to breakfast before school to the little black and white TV in our house with Jack LaLanne. I grew up coming down the stairs to five, four, three, two. I go, mom's at it again. And so when I got older, um, I was also an athlete. And uh, in college, I uh, my first year in college, I worked for Richard Simmons Health Clubs teaching exercise. <laughs> and my mother used to come to my classes. And you know, one day she said to me, I don't know, you and your stretching, I pulled something in my butt. And, you know, many, many doctor visits later, they discovered she had colon cancer at 47. And um, we knew I knew nothing. I mean, you know, we we were an Italian Irish family. I don't know anything about health or wellness or whatever. I exercised like that was it. So she um, went through all the conventional treatments. And at the end of two years, you know, passed away. It, and she was about five, eight and weighed about 67 pounds when she passed away. And I, I remember thinking, and I'm, and I'm not a medical basher, I just remember standing by her bed at 25 thinking, man, if I ever get sick, I'm not doing this. I, I don't know what I'll do, but if I ever get sick, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I was too afraid of it. It was terrifying to watch what she went through. So after my mother passed away, I decided to move to Philadelphia from Florida where my dad uh, was it was still living and my brother was in Philly. So I was like, well, let me just, you know, come up to Philly, new life, new, whatever. And six months later I get diagnosed with, um, what would be considered stage four leukemia, although they don't stage leukemia. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office thinking, are you kidding? Like, are you kidding? Like, I just, are you kidding? And I remember thinking, it was so long ago that it's really hard to kind of go back to that girl. But I remember thinking, as I was in the elevator leaving his office, that if I could just memorize the pattern of the carpet in the elevator, I wouldn't start screaming and have a total meltdown of panic. And it was a gray carpet with a maroon floor de lis. And I remember stepping outside into the sunlight, it was a beautiful day, and thinking, people are just going about their lives and I've just been told mine's over in six months. Like I'm out of here before I'm even 26 years old. How, how does this work? So I went home to my apartment and they wanted me to go immediately to the hospital and start treatments. And I said, well, what are the chances? And they said, well, you're terminal. And they kept saying terminal, terminal, terminal. And finally it was so frustrated. I'm like, that's a big building at the airport. What do we do? And they said, we'll try everything we can. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not, no, I'm not spending whatever time I have left sick and bald like my mother. I'm not doing it. I don't want to lose my hair. I don't want to be sick. I'm afraid of needles. No. So they agreed to let me go home and think about it. And um, I sat in my apartment for 24 hours and thought, I'm just going to move back to Italy. When I was 21, I had gone to Italy with my younger brother as a chaperone of his high school band. He came home and I stayed for a year. And I thought, I'll just go back. It was wonderful. And when I'm dead, I'm dead. You know, they'll always remember me as young, what, whatever. You know, you're stupid at that age. I don't know. And um, I went back to work. I was working as an illustrator at the time and decided because I was decided to be out of food. I wasn't strong. I just couldn't hold up during a shift. So I just worked as an illustrator. And a friend of mine who worked with me said, you know, you should meet this guy. He eats seaweed and says it cures cancer. And I thought, wow, <laughs> sounds awesome. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and he said, no, no, you got to meet him. He's really smart. And I was like, well, I'm not leaving for a couple of weeks. So what, what have I got to lose? So I meet Robert Perello, who obviously it worked out. 
And he starts telling me about macrobiotics and food and, you know, you can change your blood quality with food. And I'm thinking, man, somebody should tell these five grim oncologists who are telling me I'm out of here. Are you? Sh-? And, and he's like, you, sh- you should try it. And I thought, well, I don't really care what I eat right now because I'm dying. So you want me to eat brown rice and not eat pizza? Fine. I'll eat brown rice. So um, he took me shopping at a co-op in the city which was like stepping from 1983 into 1968, you know, hairy legs, flowing windy and cotton skirts. And I'm buying things like turnips and rutabagas that I thought you fed to horses. I know I seaweed, something called miso. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, what am I doing? And we get back to my little apartment on Pine street. And my husband open husband to be opens my pantry and said, yeah, all this has to go. I mean, sugar, cocoa powder, all this has to go. And I'm thinking, what are you kidding? This is like my, my life. So I started cooking really half-assed. I mean, I thought the food was boring. I, you know, I had no, t- it was, you know, I just ate because that's what I was supposed to do. Went back to get my blood monitored. And two months after I started, stopped eating sugar and started eating whole food, I was in remission. In just two months? In just two months. Now I didn't stay there. I kind of went in and out of remission over the next nine months. But when they gave me that sort of uh, inspiration of, you're in remission. We don't know why. I thought, yeah, I'm learning how to cook this food. That's it. I'm I'm learning this because this might be my only shot. And for about nine months, I went in and out of remission and um, then started to get progressively better. And they started calling my condition spontaneous regression. I was like, okay. And then 14 months after I was diagnosed, I went for my blood work and I remember the technician kept coming out and taking more blood. And I thought to myself, either something's really wrong again, or we're feeding every vampire <laughs> in the tri-state area. I don't know. And uh, she said, the doctors need to see you. And I went in and he said, you know, you're terribly anemic. And I said, well, in light of everything else, shouldn't we be happier about this? And he said, well, we can't seem to find any leukemic cells and we don't know what's going on with you. So we want to monitor you closely. And I said, Okay. And so I finally told them, I said, you need to know I'm doing this food thing and here's what it is. And they were like, yeah, that's nothing to do with anything that's happening to you. And I said, yeah, but I'm not taking any treatments. I'm not, I'm, so what do you think this is? And they said, it's called spontaneous regression. It won't last. I was like, okay, but I had no leukemic cells and that was 30, almost 35 years ago. That's so. amazing. And like, it's just so disappointing that mainstream healthcare professionals don't want to give any credibility to this at all. 35 years ago, they're better now. Although I would not go so far as to say you'll find an army's worth of doctors saying you can cure yourself with food. We have many more now on board saying you can prevent disease, but when it comes to curative, there's not that many who are like really on board yet. There's a few and they're wonderful, but it's a slow process and it's actually I don't want to say it's not their fault because they could be proactive, but they don't really study nutrition in the way that nutrition is presented in a holistic manner. Like once I got better, I thought, oh yeah, I got to figure out like, why did I get better? Like, I don't understand this. So I quit my very lucrative job as an illustrator and went to work for $7 an hour in a natural food store cooking foods for a lunch counter, broccoli and tofu, uh, tempeh and whatever, And the customers kept asking me, so why did you put this with this? Is that supposed to be better for my health? And I'm thinking, I I don't know. I don't know. So there's a recipe on the wall. So 
I went to school and studied. I got my master's in nutrition. I went to acupuncture school, school although I don't put uh, needles in anybody. I, but I wanted to study anatomy from that perspective. I uh, studied Ayurvedic. I studied uh, Chinese medicine. I sat with anybody who would, you know, sort of mentor me to understand the impact of food on wellness and realized at maybe 28 that my life's work is this, you know, helping people to figure out whether you're vegan or not vegan is actually irrelevant to me. I'm not a very good vegan in that way. I think that giving people information that helps them make the best choices for themselves will naturally lead them more toward vegetables and grains and beans and away from factory farmed animals. So it's more of a Lao Tzu kind of meditative approach than a finger shaking, you know, you're all in or get out. Um, like I have friends who are, are vegans that I love to death, but when you said earlier, we were vegetarian, they would have said, this is not the interview for us. And I, I just don't believe that. I think that if we make everybody welcome at the table, no pun intended, then everybody's welcome at the table. And that's how you learn. That's how you discover, you know? So for me being a V, I, I often try not to use the V word because it sets you up immediately for prejudice. Well, it sounds like you weren't necessarily the healthiest vegetarian. And we found that as well. You know, it's like, why I, I found that, you know, uh, chicken breast from a pastured raised chicken was going to be more healthy for me to eat than a processed morning star veggie burger. Like I just health wise, it wasn't working out for me. So, you know, we found balance. So now when we eat meat, it's coming from as much as we can, you know, a local farm and buying organics and, and right stuff and trying to stay away from processed foods, but we still enjoy eating meat and dairy, but being, having vegetarian cuisine and quite often vegan, that's still a big chunk of our diet, but we're not all or nothing. Right. And also I feel like if more people, you know, started moving toward that way of eating, then you're naturally going to eat more vegetables. And if we were farming animals in that way, there wouldn't be the impact on human health and on the planet that we're seeing as a result of factory farming, because everybody has to have a 49 pound steak on their plate. Do I think there's good news about animal food for our wellness? Not that I've seen, but I do see people who thrive on it. So it's not for, I feel like it's not for me to judge. I feel like I learned from a very wise Asian teacher who, whose expertise was you would come to him when you had a life-threatening condition and, and Micho Kushi would counsel you on what to eat. And he would go through this big, long booklet and, you know, eat this and this and don't eat that. And, you know, people would either do it or not. And they would pay him and they'd go. And I remember a particular very tough case. I, I was working with him to learn. And uh, so I was taking notes and every page that he turned in the booklet, this woman was like, no, I can't do that. No, 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 that's not going to happen. Every single thing he suggested, I mean, she was stage four liver cancer. This was do or die, pizza or death. What are you going to do? So, and I'm getting frustrated because I knew the impact that it had had on me. I, I knew that she could, she may not survive, but she could transform her health so that the time she had left was more comfortable. So she leaves and I am ballistic. And, uh, and Michio said to me at one point, wow, you are Italian. Can you please tell me what's wrong? And so I told him, I can't believe this. And he said to me, yes, but answer this. Qu-. I always felt like grasshopper in that bag Kung Fu show. He's like, tell me this. 
Did I do my job? Yes. Did I give her the information she requested? Yes. Is it my job to make sure she does it? Uh, no. Don't be attached to the outcome, just do your job. And so I learned that a long time ago. I mean, I think we have to be a little attached to the outcome now because it's planetary. You know, we're at a tipping point. We either start eating less factory farmed animals or we're screwed. You know, our, our kids are not gonna see a lake. We're gonna show them a photo. See that thing that's on fire over there? It used to be this lake. So I think we're kind of at a place where we have to let go of our cowboy culture of, you know, I got to have a huge rack of ribs and half a cow and whatever, and um, start taking vegetarian cuisine more seriously in terms of uh, the planet and in terms of human health, we're also in crisis. I was watching um, an interview with a doctor from Tufts University, cardiologist, who said one of the reasons that the pandemic is so devastating to Americans is that 77% of us are metabolically unfit to fight disease. And I thought that was terrifying. It was much higher than I thought. So for me, it's also about human wellness. You know, like certainly I have compassion for animals as a vegan. You, you can't not have it. But my compassion is primarily for humans and the suffering that we go through because of the choices we make, not because of something that's been imposed on us except conditioning and advertising. But, you know, you watch TV at night and every ad is for either diabetes, psoriasis, you know, AFib, and you think food, 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 food. So for me, that, that, that's kind of the, the job, the mission for me. Yeah, we talk about that a lot at home. My wife uh, used to be a chef. She went back to school. So she's a, a, di she's a dietitian, a registered dietitian, a right. certified diabetes educator. And as of last week, she just completed her master's in public health. Yeah. So we, you know, we've always have these conversations at home, but especially this past year with COVID and looking at the percentage of people who are diabetic or have really bad uncontrolled diabetes and the obesity and all that, you know, I think it's hard because in recent years, I feel like people are saying, stop talking about weight, stop talking about fat shaming. It's like, we're, we're, we're not doing that. But there is a certain point where someone is not healthy, and it should be addressed. Like if someone's 600 pounds, if someone's 600 pounds, that doesn't seem like that's a good thing. Like, you might need to work on that, right? But it's not it's and it's not about fat shaming. Fat shaming is it's a Hollywood thing. You know, you're not a size zero. So therefore you can't walk the red carpet. A designer won't dress you. You know, the designer wouldn't make clothing for Melissa McCarthy. So she had to start her own line of fashion or whatever. Like that's fat shaming. But when somebody's knees, ankles, arthritis, diabetes, heart disease forms as a result of the choices you're making that have created the body that you're living in, you got to look at it with reality. And you got to say, maybe I should work on this a little. It's not about becoming a size zero, you know, and social media, the sewer of our lives at this moment, although I use it for business, I was reading something not too long ago about the singer Lizzo. She started the new year and did a 10 day cleanse because she'd been partying or whatever. I don't know much about her. Her music is great, but you know, I don't, I don't really, I'm not a celebrity obsessed person, so I have no idea. 
And she was getting killed apparently on social media because she's heavy. And now she was betraying all these fat girls and saying it's not okay to be fat anymore. She didn't say a thing about weight because I found her post. I'm like, let me go see what. And all she said was, hey, I've been partying too much. I'm doing a 10 day cleanse. She didn't say I'm trying to lose weight. She didn't say I want to change my body. But I think, and this is just me, I think it's because we do know. We do know it's not healthy to be that big. And we're not saying that if you're big, you are stupid and lazy. We're saying somewhere something went off the rails and maybe we should look at getting it back on the rails a little. I always say like, at what point do you say, I'm done, I can't fight this anymore? Is it 20 pounds, is it 40 pounds, is it 100 pounds? At some point, you know, you put your clothes on and go, whew, maybe I shouldn't have had that, whatever, and you stop for a bit, right? Yeah, I talked about this on the podcast this past year. So in February, I was like, 287 and now i'm down to 250 right but like for me one of the moments was we went on vacation we went to disney and i went on one of the rides and they could not pull the lap bar down on me and i i and they had to like kick me off the ride right which is embarrassing but then i hadn't weighed myself in a while and you get home and you're like this is just it's not good and had a physical and i was pre-diabetic. My sugar was too high. My dad had diabetes. My grandmother had it. We know that's not good. My wife's a certified diabetes educator, right? And I'm like, I just need to change. Like, I'm going to start working out and I'm going to start eating better. And, you know, I eventually lost over 35 pounds and I've been able to keep it off and I still have some ways to go. But for me, it was just like, I wasn't feeling physically good. It wasn't that I looked in the mirror and thought, you know, I don't look good. Like, the stats are telling me, like, I am in danger of having a medical condition that's going to be very dangerous to me, especially right. at a time where people are dying of COVID of diabetes. I mean, that definitely was weighing on my mind. Right. So I'm not really sure where all that went off the rails that suddenly it's like, you know, we're fat shaming people if you're trying to give advice. But I, I think we have to find, um, I mean, look, there's certainly a, an incredible level of cruelty around the way anybody looks if they're different, whether they're heavy, whether they're short, whether they're, whether they have red hair. I mean, I got a, I got a, a message on social media about a week ago. It said, I'm telling this because I love you as a personality on TV. And I thought, here we go. And it, it's very long. I'll keep it very short. And it basically said that if I want to be successful, um, I have to choose any other hair color except red because it is the least popular hair color in our culture. And then in parens said, meaning no one likes you, you're welcome. <laughs> I was like, wow, wow, like what do I do with that? I'm a redhead, I've been a redhead my whole life. But it's kind of like, you don't wanna take asking someone to change something that they can change like their weight to that kind of level. No one likes you cause you're heavy. Yeah. But it has to be more of a, let's talk about, you know, it, it, and if this is where you want to be, then that's your choice. Although it does, you know, impact all of our healthcare. But if this is your choice, it's your choice. So I kind of leave it to people. Don't, don't, don't ask me if you don't want to know. Like, if you want to know, I'll tell you. But I will never offer advice. And mostly because being in public, you know, in the public, you get way more advice than you would ever want so, and most of it not fun, shall we say. So, so I get it, but we have to find a way to 
to become healthier as a collective population, and not just because of COVID, but in general, we can't go on like this. I mean, the only people that are thriving in the modern American culture are pharmaceutical companies. I mean, they've never been happier. So how did you get into Christina Cook's, you know, becoming this multimedia kind of food personality, right? Where you've got a TV show and cookbooks. How and when did you start that? Well, I was teaching, well, after I uh, finished my studies, although I still study, but when I finished my sort of formal studies, I went to my Japanese teacher and said, like, what do I do now? I have all this information in my head. And he said, you should teach cooking. And I was like, oh, great. Because I'm a chef and I'm a girl. I should go teach cooking. But it, it occurred to me after I argued with him that I could talk to you for four hours about what a carrot does. And then you leave and you have no idea what to do with that carrot. What did I give you really? But nothing useless information. But if, as I'm talking to you about what a carrot does, I teach you how to cook a carrot, maybe I've done something. So I became a cooking teacher. We started in my kitchen. No, it was not this kitchen. 1987-ish, we had a loft that we rented. Four people became eight people because it was kind of like word of mouth. You know, the food was good and she's kind of funny. So she actually makes the joke about being a vegan before you get to make the joke. So it was kind of like this um, entertaining thing they came to and got lunch for 20 bucks. And then um, it grew and grew. And then we moved into the house we currently live in where my kitchen is 14 by 21. So I would seat 25 people uncomfortably in the kitchen. Finally, they spread into the living room, into the dining room. You know, we had what we called the cheap seats. We had to rent a space because we were getting 50, 60, 70 people on a Saturday. And I was hiring people to come help me cook because there's it was like a catering job every week. And then after the show, the class was over, we would come back. My assistants and I would sit in front of the TV and watch PBS and watch all these chefs. And I'd go, yeah, we could veganize that. Let's let's make this recipe. Let's do that. And my husband walked in one day who is in advertising and said, um, you should do this on TV. You should go on PBS and do this. I'm like, yeah, sure. Make it happen, hon, and I'll do it. Two years later, he raised the money, 1998. We went on the air. Eden Foods was our first sponsor. God bless them. They saw the vision and agreed with it. And uh, we actually met with the Discovery Channel as well. And they were wonderful. They were like, this is a great idea. We're just going to need you to throw a chicken breast in here or there to make the food familiar for Americans. And I was like, no, no, that's you're missing the point. The point is you don't need any of that. That's so it didn't work for them. And then I was the Food Network was also just sort of starting and um, I, was, I was at an event with Jacques Pepin and Emeril, ironically. And uh, Emeril was saying, you should go to the Food Network. It's going to be great. You'll make a ton of money. You'll open a restaurant. I'm like, I don't want to open a restaurant. I- I've worked in restaurants. I don't want to. No, no, no. You'll open a restaurant. I'm like, no. Then I'm sitting there next to Jacques Pepin, who was like talking to melted butter. He's so lovely. And he said to me, you don't want to go to the Food Network. You want to come to PBS. You own your content. You decide what you're cooking. As long as the production value is good, you'll never regret it. Okay. So I listened to Jacques, obviously. And uh, I don't regret being on public television ever. I love public television. The hard thing is you have to raise all of your production money. They don't help you in any way. They just put it out there. And as long as you meet the production value levels, um, you know, you're on, you're in business. Like they don't cancel you if your ratings are low. Like it's, it's as long as you have good content and it's educational, which was important to us. This was not about, 
I'm going to show you how to saute an onion. I'm going to show you why you saute an onion. Like for me, it was about teaching. So um, we started doing it. And the very first year we went on the air, we were so weird. Like we were so weird. We were cooking tofu and dried daikon and dried shiitake mushrooms. And I think people were watching it and going, what the hell is she doing? And um, my producers decided to submit the show for an Emmy. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So we get nominated. In your first year? Yeah, my very first year when I was terrible. I like didn't even know what camera to look at. So I'm like, you guys are nuts, but okay. So we go and we win for outstanding achievement for host. And I'm thinking it's because we were, we're a freak show. Like they, <laughs> they didn't know what I was doing. So we won. And, um, you know, and, and it's become easier to do TV certainly now for me. And it's still the biggest classroom in the world. So. And that's a whole weird thing. Like, you know, I guess, did you just like teach yourself how to be a quote unquote personality. I mean, because like yeah. me, it's like, I've got this podcast now. Like I went to school for culinary. It's literally the only thing I've ever studied. And people are like, you should start a podcast. Sure. Um, I'm only in the, this is going to be in season two, uh, listening to the first episodes. I'm like, ah, and I had some really amazing guests and the production quality was horrible. I didn't know how to interview any of it. And it's, cringeworthy listening to some of that stuff, but I feel like it's getting better and you come into your own, you just, the re the repetition of it. And for me, I, you know, I, I somehow went from being someone who wouldn't even return something to a store to standing in front of a room of 20 people and teaching cooking in a way that they found engaging because I get bored easily. So if some, if I'm listening to someone lecture, they need to be engaging or I'm out, you know? So I knew and I also knew the subject matter invited jokes. So we may as well make fun of ourselves before anybody even does. So I became sort of like this self-deprecating, funny, and, and I guess I'm, I don't know, naturally have good timing or whatever. And the first season I look back at those shows because Create TV will run them. And I think, oh my God, we have to get those off the air. We have to get, <laughs> have to get those off the air. First of all, I didn't know you could wear your hair naturally so they would tease it up and bring like the top up like I was going to the prom. And I would think, I hate this. But, and I would say something to my husband, he goes, you can't say anything. I'm like, can I get fired? And he's like, well, no, it's your show. But so, and I didn't know, I didn't know how to like use a mic. I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was growing. It was growth. And it's funny because this season that's on the air now we film at the culinary school where I teach and have a very, a new crew, very small. I've used them for three seasons now. And, um, they're like family and these guys are totally into it and they're funny. And, uh, we do these like silly sticky bits on the show now. Like there's a show coming up. We just watched it in editing and I thought, I cannot believe PBS is going to let me do this. It's so silly. I give my chef something, my backstage chef something. I said, you need to rinse these noodles for me. He goes, okay, I'll go downstairs. And does that thing where, you know, you walk behind the counter. And the guys at public television are like, oh my God, we're so glad to see that still works. It's so funny. And, um, you know, we'd so there, and my director, who's 52, pre-diabetic, cholesterol through the roof, triglycerides that were nuclear, said, you know what? He called, we were in Rome, called us. I'm like, why is Scotty calling us in? And they also like joked about the food. We'd go to Wawa while we had lunch kind of thing. But they always ate the food. 
So he called us in Rome and said, my wife has stage one colon cancer. You have to help us. Like, okay, it's a big change. I know. They did it, adopted it. She's fine. It's been a year and a half. She just got her first scan. Totally fine. Scotty has lost 60 pounds. Looks like a teenager. His cholesterol is normal. His blood pressure is low. He has no prediabetes. He's like a new man. He literally looks like a teenager. His kids are in, like, everybody's so into this new thing for them. So, you know, that kind of thing's really gratifying. And I said nothing except here's what I would do if I were in your shoes. Here's exactly what I would do. And they were like, okay, we're doing it. Okay. And look, fear is a great motivator. They say the word cancer or diabetes and uh, suddenly you're into change. Okay, I'm in. I say, why wait? But I waited. I didn't, you know, I went from healthy food at home to a diet of Snicker bars and diet Dr. Pepper and Oreos because they were vegan. So how do you keep creating new recipes? I mean, the cookbooks, the putting them out on the internet, the show, like at some point, do you feel exhausted trying to come up with something new? This is going to sound very cheesy, but no, I, I love, I love what I do. I am one of those people who's excited by every garlic clove that appears on my cutting board. I love the collaborative art of working together with my crew. I love the solitude of writing at the same time. So, you know, it's like, I love my crew. I love working with them. You, I could never do this without them, without my husband, without my unit manager, who's been with me for 22 years. My, you know, the person who comes in and does makeup, um, you know, what everybody and everybody on our crew, everybody on our crew is treated exactly the same from the kid who runs for coffee to me. There's no divas. There's no hierarchy. We are all there to serve the mission of telling the story of, you know, how food has an impact on your wellness. So I love that. And when it comes to creating, I mean, I read food magazines, I read other people's cookbooks. I'm always veganizing things like this past weekend, I, I get a magazine called Bake because I am a baker at heart. I, I feel like made a hater. Cooking is great, but it's like the warm up to the baseball game. It's all about the sweets. And it was an orange brownie cookie and it, you know, had eggs and butter. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to get this texture. No way, but I'm trying it. In fact, right now there's orange peel candying on my stove, which I'm hoping isn't overcooking. So I may pick up this phone and walk over and check it because I don't want it to overcook because I'm going to try them again and make sure I was right. And it's perfect. Okay. So I guess I am obsessed with food in a good way. I worry constantly about the planet, which inspires me to do better. I worry about waste. You know, do you know? Do we need this versus do we want this? Um, do we? I um, mean, we compost. You know, it's it's what's exhausting is the impact of your choices. Like every choice has an impact. A year ago, we bought a floor lamp for the living room. I was on a, I was on a morning talk show and there was this, these two African-American women who decided that every woman needs bling in their life. And they had created this floor lamp that was sprayed with gold glitter. It was the most awesome thing I'd ever seen. I said to my husband, I have to have that lamp. And he's like, okay, but we have a floor lamp, which we've had since we got married in 1987. So we actually debated as to whether or not what we would do. So we gave that floor lamp to someone else. So it didn't go in the landfill and we bought the new lamp, but, and that's just an example. But what I'm saying is 
that's what's exhausting to me is the impact of our choices the creativity of working with my people um creating new recipes figuring out a new way to cook a carrot is inspiring and yeah there's days when i think god i just want to order a pizza but they're very few and far between we bake bread we um and not because of covid we always did so no that was very long sorry but no i don't find it exhausting at all i find it consistently inspiring because i love my work i love my work and now i travel with groups to italy when we can travel and i show them you know these other cultures italy spain croatia israel um and often it's through the eyes of the food you know who we're eating with who's hosting us who's in cooking class you know it's it's like food is it's like the universal way we speak to each other it's the one thing where we can come together i think and and maybe create unity again yeah i love that i talked to so many people about bringing um we've had some conversation about conflict resolution around a dinner table, right? I just think less and less people are sitting together and eating. And I think grab a plate of food and, you know, have a great conversation around it. Yeah. I mean, think about it. At, you know, at the dinner table, you learn everything from sharing to communication, to social justice, you know, compromise, y you learn it all at the table. And as Michael Pollan famously said, you don't find people standing around the microwave waiting for the thing to spin around and eat that, but you do find them around the table, not willing to jump up just that. Oh, oh, let's have one more glass of wine. Let's, you know, oh, let's, you, you know, you delay the process so you can stay at that table longer and, and live and hang with your friends and family longer. And I think one of the worst parts of the pandemic for people is that, I mean, thank God you're home. Hopefully you're home with someone you love. I mean, alone is alone. We're not meant to, we're not single sort of creatures. We like to be together. We like to need each other. You know, somebody asked me once, um, what superpower or what superhero I would be. And I always said the wonder twins, because there were two of them. So you always had each other. So you were always together. And they were like, yeah, but you're together all the time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we need each other. Like we have to realize again and I think food is a great vehicle that we need each other. We can't go on like this. Yeah, I have twins at home. Uh, they're eight years old. And we said, you know, that's one of the big things because they're not playing with friends. At least they have each other. And while they still bicker back and forth, they've become much closer since, oh, yeah. you know, in the, in the past year for sure. Yeah, yeah. Twins are great. <laughs> yeah, they, it keeps it interesting for sure. Are they identical? No, boy, girl. Well, at least you tell them apart because otherwise they would mess with you. Yes. <laughs> what are some of your favorite underrepresented or um, what are some things in the pantry or vegetables that you think are great that maybe people aren't eating? You know, there's the classic like healthy foods that I think people have heard of. But what are some of your favorites that maybe don't get enough attention? I think... Um, I'm happy to see foods like tempeh becoming more popular because everyone associates soybeans with tofu and ew, um, you know, and tofu is great. But I think that tempeh, because of its texture, it is suddenly having a little bit of a renaissance. And, you know, it's like, oh, everyone's talking about tempeh, which is kind of cool. I think that burdock is, in, is highly undervalued because it's considered more Asian and no one really knows it and you can't really find it, but it's really high in folic acid. It's a good blood purifier. It's strengthening. It's warming. 
I think the daikon you're starting to see more of, and it's such a valuable veggie for us. But otherwise, I think I think that chefs. One of the wonderful things chefs are doing is bringing great awareness to these more. I don't want to say exotic because exotic implies expensive, but these more diverse. Yeah, diverse, interesting ingredients, and and because people are more educated because they watch cooking shows, because they, you know, now know words like sous vide or, you know, whatever, that they um, pay attention to ingredients more and and might be more willing to pick up a rutabaga and say, oh, I saw chef so-and-so cook this. Let me see what it tastes like. So, but there are, there, you know, I think that vegetables are really um, experiencing a huge renaissance too. And things like collard greens and bok choy, as opposed to only kale, you know, all leafy greens are starting to see a bigger exposure out there, which is great. Yeah, I love collard greens. We grow them every year. They're so hardy. They come back if you, you know, depending on where you live. And I actually prefer them to kale. I mean, I don't love them raw as much, but like, I also don't kill them. I think a lot of people think of collards as like boiled for hours. Like, there's a recipe I found for uh, caramelized miso butter, and you just take some miso and put it in a pan and dry and heat it in the pan for maybe like two or three minutes until it starts to brown, and then just add in uh, rice wine vinegar and mirin to kind of deglaze it, and then just hit it with a knob of butter, and you know you could use some kind of vegan butter, and that's it, and then just saute the collards really quickly and toss that in there, and it's amazing, and it's like the best like five minute collards. Yeah, that might be collard greens for tonight. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> that might be collard greens tonight. Um, yeah, we have a CSA that we was, we're in a city, so my garden is limited. And usually in the summer, um, not this, not 2020, of course, but usually in the summer, we're gone a lot. We're, we spend a lot of time in Europe hosting groups. So I don't spend a lot of time in my garden. This year I did and grew more, but our CSA, there you can buy collard greens at any supermarket, but then you get them from your CSA and you just shred them and you do throw them into a salad because they're small and they're tender and they're just like it's like almost like picked lettuce. Right. I looked at uh, a lot of your recipes. You use brown rice syrup. I've never even tried that. What's the the benefit of that? So brown rice syrup has a couple things going for it. One is that it's um, about 75% still complex sugar because it's brown rice that's cooked with um, usually a cultured rice called koji until it becomes a liquid and then it's fermented. So part of the beauty of it is that it's fermented, so it's easier to digest. Part of it is that it's a bit of a complex sugar, so it digests slowly and you're not an insulin trigger. And the third part of it is that it's a glucose-based sweetener, so it's kind of what our brains really want it has a butterscotch type flavor. It's not quite as sweet as sugar, but um, I've been using it for years because of that. And on its own, before you get hammered, on its own, its glycemic index is not super low, but nobody drinks a cup of brown rice syrup. The minute it's in a recipe with carbohydrates or fat, the glycemic index, as we all know, as your wife would know, changes. So you know, unless you're drinking it with a straw, it's a, it's a better sweetener than white granulated sugar. So I kind of use that in coconut sugar, which is a low glycemic sweetener. So yeah, but brown rice syrup is, yeah, I love it. That's actually what my uh, orange peel was candying in. I think I'm going to have to pick some up and try that. So good. It's so, so good. Um, if you buy a brand called Lundberg, which is from California, 
be careful baking with it because it's a great product. They're a wonderful organic farm in California, but they ferment their rice syrup with enzymes. And sometimes the enzymes can interact with baking powder and baking soda and not let them do their job as well. I use a brand called Suzanne Specialties, which we actually sell in our web store. It's hard to find at retail because they're a big commercial company. They sell to like Cliff Bars and West Bray and all those guys. But um, they make it with koji, this fermented rice. And so it kind of doesn't mess with your leavening. I've been messing with koji a little bit. It's really interesting to see more and more chefs doing it and all the interesting things like charcuterie and just, you know, it seems to be having a moment right now. And I think we're going to keep seeing that for the next few years at least. And and hopefully it'll continue. Yeah. And it's funny because we worked our way through miso and even natto had its moment and sea vegetables. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. (laughs) This is good. So yeah, I think that um, a lot of what we considered exotic ingredients are going to become more familiar in the mainstream sort of vocabulary of food. Do you have anything new on the horizon? Well, we have a new series that just premiered a week ago all across the country. Uh, the next series will start filming in March. I am beginning the process of working on another book, but uh, it's really at the beginning. And it was supposed to be written during the pandemic. I'm going to be home, no events. I'll just write the book. But I have a little vanity project on the side, which is an online vegan bakery that does cookies and treats. And it was always, you know, a little, I'd bake one day a week, no big deal. During the pandemic, it became a hundreds of dozens a week of cookies. So writing went out the window because all I did was bake, which was fine. I was thrilled. But um, yeah, writing kind of went out the window. So right now I have to sort of develop a small book for the next series because the current book, Back to the Cutting Board, I've kind of used almost all the recipes in it for the last two series. So I kind of have to come up with something. So that it's kind of there are things brewing in my head, but nothing concrete yet. Well, that's exciting. And the whole baking thing, I saw that you're selling cookies and these little cakes. I mean, that's a a great pivot, right? Like, can we still use the word pivot? I know everyone's using it, but I mean. Yeah, why not? It's a great, it's it's another sort of um, prong. And it's, you know, it's funny because I was baking. I had this, I had help in the little bakery. We were renting a space two blocks from here. And, you know, so we'd be together. We'd have music on. It was collaborative. Now it's very solitary. So it's like, oh, man. I need, I need my people. I need some people. I I need a little bit of people back. (laughs) I'm ready for that. Hopefully things are getting there, right? Like let's get through winter. Yeah. Let's get through winter. Was there anything else you want to share before we get out of here today? Uh, No, just that, you know, um, everybody can follow me on social media. Everything is Christina Cooks. Uh, The website, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook is all Christina Cooks. Um, there's lots of free recipes on the website. If people want to go try, they don't, I'm not going to sell them books. I mean, we do sell books, but you know, if you want to just dip your toe in the water, go grab a recipe that sounds good to you. And, um, if you don't do anything else in this life, eat more veggies. Love it. And I always link all that stuff in the show notes. So people will be able to just click and go. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was great fun. To all our listeners. This has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.